as one. I remember when I was first married, living in Philadelphia, trying to make my bank book harmonize with my bank statement. I always thought that I had more money than I actually had. And what I needed to do was go through all my purchases and expenditures and make sure that the bottom line of my checkbook, all done by hand back then, the bottom line of my checkbook was harmonized with the bottom line of my bank statement. There needed to be harmony. And when you had achieved that harmony by remembering some of the things you had purchase that you had forgotten to, written down, to write down, when the two numbers on the bottom were the same, then you could say that your checkbook was reconciled with the bank statement. Harry Lubbers, I'm sure, is familiar with that term. It used to be quite common in accounting. But the reconciliation that I want to focus on primarily this morning is not between things but it is between God and man, and man and God. That fellowship and harmony, that restoration of fellowship and friendship that should exist between the high and holy one and his sinful creatures. Reconciliation between God and man, a restoration of harmony, a renewal of friendship. But why is there a need for reconciliation? If you were to talk to the person on the street, they would say that they have no problem with God and are pretty sure that God has no problem with them. They're not at odds with Him at all. There's no hostility or enmity whatsoever, they would say. But the Scriptures would beg to differ because the very fact that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, shows us that there is a need for reconciliation. There is disharmony, disunity, hostility, and enmity between God and man. Well, how did that come about? Well, it certainly wasn't the way that things were created. If you go back to the first chapters of the Bible, you can see that wonderful harmony that was between God and man. God would come into the garden in the cool of the day, and there would be fellowship between uh, Adam and Eve and their Creator. Now, of course, they, they weren't friends like you and I could be friends because God is infinite and they are finite. God is the Creator and they are the creatures. God is the Maker and they are the made. But God, in a wonderful display of condescension, He bent down, He stooped down, in order to have fellowship and friendship with the persons that he had made. It was a wonderful relationship of mutual love and affection between God and man. And then sin happened. And when sin happened, everything was ruined in terms of our relationship to God. You can just see that, for instance, in the response of Adam the next time the Lord comes into the garden in the cool of the day, instead of there being an affical welcome, wow, wonderful to see you once more, Adam and Eve hid from God, covering themselves with fig leaves. There was no longer this freedom, this joy in God. There was this fear of Him and this separation from Him. 
And what happened there is a picture of what happened with all humanity in relation to God. Just listen to what the Apostle Paul says in in Romans 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. So that's the default position of all sinners who come into this world. They raise their fist at him. They want nothing to do with him. They hate him and detest him. And the evidence of it is all around us. You can see it in their disobedience to God's commands, their refusal to submit to him. They say in so many words, we will not have this king to rule over us. We don't want him interfering in our life. In fact, as the Puritans used to say, to to sin against God is actually to call for God's death. It is to tell him to mind his own business, to off himself. We don't need you around at all. And even if they don't say it in so many words, that is what they say in their hearts. Remember when Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Though they cannot escape the existence of God because it is imprinted upon their natures and evidenced in God's creation, humanity hates that God exists. And if they could get their hands on him, they would kill him. In fact, as the psalmist says in Psalm 2, the nations, the kings, the rulers, the peoples, they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. There is disharmony between God and man, hostility between the two. But the interesting thing is, is that if you read through the New Testament Scriptures, it's not so much that man has a problem with God that is the focus of reconciliation. It's rather that God has a problem with man. It's not so much that we are the, or that God is our enemy. It's rather that we are God's enemies. He has something against us. There is something in us that has ruptured that fellowship. It's because of something in us that has caused that alienation between God and his creatures. Now, that might be a little bit difficult for us to wrap our minds around because we're so convinced that God loves the world. So how can God love the world and yet see, as Paul says in Romans 5, and yet see the world as his enemies? Well, that is a challenge for us. And yet we have to say what is true from the Scriptures, that it is undoubtedly true that God loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten Son, That God is kind and generous to humanity, even to sinful humanity, causing His Son to shine upon the just and and on the unjust and sending His rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. That's true. God is loving towards all that He has made. Yet it's also true that God hates the wicked. Remember the words in Malachi 1 verse 2, Jacob have I loved but Esau I have hated. Or think of these sobering words in Psalm 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. 
The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Listen to this. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. It's not just that we think of God as public enemy number one. It is more that God thinks of fallen sinners as His enemies. And that is a remarkable problem. It is quite a shuddering thing to have God against you. And the Scriptures say that because of human sin, that is the case. In fact, you can see it in a… If you, if you cast your mind back to the Garden of Eden, you can see it in a very memorable way. So when, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, rebelled against His gracious rule, the next time God came into the garden, we know that Adam and Eve hid from God. But it's not only true that the enmity was from their side towards God. It was also from God towards them. How do I know? It's because we read there that God drove them out of the garden He banished them from His presence. And then He set up those cherubim with the flaming swords to guard the way back into His presence. They could not have fellowship with Him as sinners because God had seen, come to see them as His enemies. And so reconciliation is needed. The good news is that reconciliation is pursued, not in the first place by us laying down our hostility towards God, but if you look at the New Testament Scriptures, it is more by God removing the cause of His hostility toward us, and He did that by the death of the cross. So, for instance, if you look at verse 10 of Romans 5, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Or as Paul says at the the opening of the chapter, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is through Christ. And through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through Calvary, through Golgotha, that sinners are reconciled to God. Well, how does that happen? Well, just think about what the cause of our alienation from God is. It's not because God is difficult to get along with. He's not arbitrary or capricious or or pernickety. It's not because He doesn't like your hair color or because your idiosyncrasies bother Him. That's not why there's alienation between you and God. It is because of the cold, hard reality of sin. That's what it says in Isaiah 59. God says to His people that your iniquities, or God says through Isaiah to His people, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. There's the cause of the alienation, human sin and rebellion against God. And so for there to be reconciliation, for there to be harmony once more, 
Whatever causes alienation must be dealt with. And Jesus has dealt with that at the cross. It's at the cross on Good Friday so many years ago. It was there that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Well, how does that work? Well, just think about the movement of the cross. On the cross, our Lord Jesus hung. Why? Well, because he was the sin bearer for his people. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that God has made Jesus to be sin. Now, he's not saying that Jesus is sinful because he goes on to say that Christ knew no sin. He remained the holy, sinless Son of God, the one who was thoroughly devoted to his Father, who turned neither to the the right hand nor to the left. He always did what pleased his Father. That's why his Father said, This is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. But God made him to be sin. That is, God considered him a sinner because all of the sins of God's people flowed to the Lord Jesus like all streams and rivers flow to a lake. All of their inconsistencies, their sexual immorality, their rebellion, their gossip, their slander, their laziness, all of their anger and bitterness, all of these sins were imputed to Christ as if he himself were guilty of them. And so Christ, bearing sin, now has a problem with his God. Remember, it is sin that is the cause of alienation. And so if Christ is bearing the sin of his people, then God must be alienated from him. God simply can't overlook it. God simply can't say, well, you're my son, I love you anyway. No, God must be angry with his son. And that's the very thing that we see in the cross, is that At the sixth hour, until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the whole earth. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, it's because he was the sin bearer. And sin bearers cannot dwell in the presence of God. They must be driven out just as Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. They must be banished from the presence of God because it's our sins that have separated us from God. That's why he doesn't hear us. It's because of our sin that God has hidden his face from them. And then when Christ takes upon himself our sin, then God hides his face from his son as well. The horrible experience. It caused our Lord Jesus such consternation such discomfort and confusion. His soul was troubled. He was sorrowful even to the point of death. And as he contemplates the cross, he falls to the ground. It's just so overwhelming to think that he who had fellowship with his father, who spent nights in prayer with him, that his father was now going to be alienated from him. How is that possible? Well, it's because he had willingly taken upon himself the sins of his people. He became the sin bearer And therefore, he became, in his sin-bearing, the enemy of God. But then remember later, again on the cross, 
There's the one cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, that demonstrates alienation, hostility, enmity. Not, of course, not, of course, that the father ever, ever at any time didn't love his son. He, he, actually, he actually loved his son the most when he banished his son because he was bearing the sins of God's people. That, that's what Jesus says in John 10. The reason my father loves me is because I lay down my life for the sheep. Now that's something for you to ponder, that the Lord, the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus loved the Son the most when the Son was being forsaken by Him. But then think about later, after the ordeal of judgment, after Christ absorbed in Himself the wrath of God, after He heard the words, depart from me, you who are cursed, he prayed to his Father. And he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, the judgment had been paid. Justice had been satisfied. Wrath had been set aside and absorbed. There was no longer any, any enmity between the Father and the Son. The Son commits himself into the hands of his heavenly Father. There's peace, there's restoration, there's fellowship, there's joy once more in each other's presence. And that's why our Lord Jesus could say to the thief on the cross, when he was asked, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he says, today you will be with me. Where? In paradise. Why? Because I'll be there as well. But weren't you just banished? Yes, I was but the Father has received me back. I have been reconciled to God. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself. It is through the death of Christ that we are reconciled to Him because in the ordeal of the cross, Christ Himself was reconciled to God. Now, what do you do with something like that? Well, notice what Paul says at the end of verse 11 of Romans 5. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So what do you do with this? You receive it with rejoicing. It's not hard to do, is it? It's not hard to receive from the hand of a God who has shown such extraordinary kindness to his enemies to receive what Christ has done in the payment of the penalty for sin. It's not hard to do that. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you readily do that? Wouldn't you jump at the opportunity to be reconciled to God? Alas, no. Such is our hostility towards God, that we refuse to lay down our arms unless God, by His tender grace and loving mercy, works in us by the power of His Holy Spirit so that we humbly submit to His offer of reconciliation. And that's what you ought to do. You ought to lay down your arms. You ought to surrender. You ought to sue for mercy. You ought to receive it with empty hands. Imagine if God were against you. Imagine 
If you were to stand before the judgment seat of Christ on that great day and you hear the words, depart from me, you evildoers. That's a shuddering thought, isn't it? If you don't have Christ as your reconciliation now, you won't have him. Uh, If you don't have Christ as your reconciliation before you die, you won't have him as your reconciler when you die. And you will spend an eternity hating God and being hated by God. It is unthinkable in its horror. If the Lord Jesus Christ collapsed on the ground as he contemplated banishment from the presence of God, what makes you think that you'll be able to weather it? It is inconceivable. But God now offers reconciliation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And by his sovereign grace, we receive it. We are saved by his life. We rejoice in God. How can it be that that we can be reconciled so that we can know the favor and the friendship of a holy God. It is an indescribable grace that enemies are now friends. How do you receive it? Well, listen to what uh, James says about our father Abram in James 2 verse 23. Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And listen to this. And he was called a friend of God. There's nothing you have to do. You just have to receive. Receive what Christ has done for sinners. Receive their reconciliation and be saved by his life. It's a wonderful thing that this morning we get to sit at the Lord's table because that is a a great picture of reconciliation, isn't it? There's no way that we have a right to the Lord's table because of our sins. In fact, it was our sins that caused the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. But now he welcomes his enemies and calls them his friends. He says, come, celebrate with me what I have done for you to restore harmony between you and God. So receive reconciliation, and then pursue reconciliation. The cross is the place of reconciliation, not only between God and man, but it is at the cross of Christ that brothers and sisters and brothers and brothers and sisters and sisters can be reconciled to one another. It is a great denial of the work of Christ for there to be enmity and hostility between brothers and sisters in Christ. And when you think of it, anything that hinders that fellowship should be detestable to us because Christ has died to make us one, one with God, but he has also died to make us one with one another. And how can we hold on to things that keep us apart? When God, infinitely offended by us, does not hold on to his hostility towards us because of our sins, but instead seeks a way for that reconciliation to happen. And shouldn't we also pursue that? Now, I understand that you can sometimes pursue reconciliation, and there's no no return on on the other side, that, that you wish to have 
uh, restored fellowship, but the other person doesn't, and that is hard. That's, that's why one of the New Testament writers says that uh, as much as in you lies, pursue peace with all men. But we ought to pursue peace. We ought to seek to, to have fellowship with one another. Joyful delight, happiness in the presence of each other because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, the Lord's Supper is a wonderful picture of that, isn't it? We'll read in the forum later that the Lord's Supper is not only a picture of fellowship between sinners and God, but it's also a picture of fellowship between brothers and sisters. It's not just Jesus and you at the Lord's Supper. It's Jesus and you and your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so let us receive reconciliation, marvel at it, rejoice in it, and then let us pursue reconciliation so that God may be pleased and that we might know the full fruits of what Christ has accomplished on the cross to make enemies the friends of God. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our great and gracious God, how we thank and praise you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, and that he took our punishment and the curse of sin and the alienation and hostility that sin deserved so that we might be welcomed with joy in the presence of our holy God. We worship you, our gracious God, and pray that that your reconciling grace would permeate every thought of our minds, every action of our lives, and the words that we speak, so that we would not only have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but peace with one another as members of the one body. Hear us, our God, we pray, and answer us in the riches of your grace. For Jesus' sake, amen.